Okay, well, welcome to the intervention. Uh, this is Steve, and I'm joined by Levi. Nick's not with us tonight, so uh, we'll see how this goes without the, I guess, the de facto leader of the uh, of the podcast. But um, I guess this is what part six, Levi, of our Palestine Israel um, series, and today we're going to yeah. talk a little bit about uh, about sport and about soccer in general, and you know the the, uh, the movement of support for Palestine in, in various areas of the um, footballing world. Yeah, specifically keeping in mind the British intervention in the area. Yeah, exactly. So it's a third part of the British side of this, I guess. <laughs> Who needs to put labels on all this? So yeah. while the cat's away, the mice will play. Let's see if we can pull <laughs> this off without Nick. Yeah. So I'll be reading through an article from the Times of Israel dated September 4th, 2022. So it's an older article, but I think it's covering something that's relatively timeless as we get into it. So the article's covered, Why Scotland's Fiercest Soccer Rivalry Features Israeli versus Palestinian Flags. Subtitle, While many see the display as more about Catholic-Protestant sectarianism than politics, Irish support for Palestine factors in. Either way, Local Jews would like to see it stopped. So right away, we have this sort of notion of Jews as being this uniformed idea, and they have a uniformed concept of what they would like to see or not see. So the first flag has already been flown. Yeah. And I can talk a little bit, about, I'll, I'll talk a little about the history of the two clubs as we go through, um, because, yeah, it, it is a pretty fierce rivalry. I mean... I think there's only been three or four players who have played for both teams. And there's a pretty famous story about, I think it was Graham Souness was one of the first to go from one to the other. <laughs> he, was, he was at Rangers and then he ended up going to play for Liverpool and a few teams in Italy. And I think, and then he ended up going to Celtic as, their, as a player manager. And I'm pretty sure it was him that the Rangers fan threw a golf ball with nails through it at him during a game. I mean, uh, of all the material that you've sent me about British sport, it just seems so much more brutal. They don't have any sort of forgiveness on their players. And what was really stood out to me was this notion that they never talk about the win or loss between the two clubs. It's really much deeper than that. The animosity just, it puts the Pittsburgh-Cleveland rivalry to shame. The amount that yeah. they really hold on to. I laugh when I, they say like best rivalries in sport and they limit it to American sports because I doubt many people, especially if you're not a soccer fan, have even heard of Celtic or Rangers because Scotland isn't a major league. They're not, you know, in the past, these guys were some of the best teams in Europe, but that's been years now. But these fans, like, they truly hate each other. Yeah, it just goes so far beyond what's going on on the pitch even. Yeah. It's, it's blood. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's been described as the closest thing to like the struggles in Northern Ireland because, as I'm sure we'll get into, Rangers are the Protestant team and, Catholic, and, and Celtic are the Catholic team. And that's actually quite common in most major cities, at least in Britain. If you have two teams in a major city, typically one is historically Protestant and one is historically Catholic. And then when you get into London, you also have Tottenham, who are historically Jewish. So you have a, a lot of these teams were 
originally formed, you know, in the 1800s through a church or through certain organizations and have these ties to religion or to, in the case of where I'm from, it was formed by, by a union and, and to give their workers some recreational activity. So, you know, in, in Sunderland, the miners or the shipbuilders union have always been tied to the team um, when they were in existence and, and even, you know, and I'll get into it, but until relatively recently and then again now. They had a brief break with the team, which I'll talk about as we get through this. Yeah, it just feels like the roots are so much deeper in the sport world to the communities that they're actually based in compared to the major league sports that we talk about in the United States. Sort of reminds me of that old quotation about sport where it's war boiled down to its virtues. Have you ever heard that? I don't think so. It's something that's thrown around a lot when people talk even about American sports, but it, it really seems to make more sense in the European, African, East Asian context, where the historical basis of a lot of these teams, as you were stating, really is founded in the communities themselves. It's not some corporation that decided to make money by creating an organization that could then play around this area. And, you know, most of the <clears throat> biggest rivalries in, in England, especially, well, in, in Europe as well, are, are teams that are in the same city. Mm. So you have, you have a natural, you know, rivalry built into just being two factions of, or sections of a city. You know, you don't typically have, I guess, in the major cities like LA, and, and you, you may have more than one team in the same league, but typically they're in different divisions or, or whatever, whereas... You know, you have the Premier League. They're all in the Premier League. And so there's rivalries there. And then if you get into like Spain, in Madrid, you have multiple teams. But Real Madrid's biggest rivalry is with Barcelona. And a lot of reason for that is Real Madrid are called Real Madrid because it's royal. And they, mm -hmm. are, the king, they are the king's team. So historically, um, if they've ever been in financial trouble, the government or the, the king would just, you know, oh, give them a loan for something to, to help bail them out. Whereas Barcelona are viewed as a much more, um, I don't know if socialist is the right word, but a much more socially conscious team. Mm. Um, there was of a the people. Yeah. And then, um, so like, for example, a guy called Johan Cruyff, who was Dutch and who was one of probably the top five players ever, um, certainly in the discussion for that. He refused to go to Madrid for those. He wanted to go play for Barcelona because he felt that team represented his values more. You don't see that very often, especially now. Um, typically, players are going to go where they get the most money. Hmm. But he, you know, he really wanted to go play for Barcelona, and he ended up doing that. So it, you know, there are. I think there's a little more um, community relationships with these teams than, than you probably see in America as well. Yeah, the closest thing I can think of is within the city of Chicago with the White Sox versus the Cubs, where the White Sox really are the south side of the city, which is yeah. more economically working class compared to the Cubs, which are more north side. But the people that play on these teams in these areas, I, I, I agree with you. I think they're more just going to the team that's giving them the better paycheck. Not that I blame them for that, the way that it's set up in the United States. Well, it's just, I mean, it's the same in, in Europe now as well. I mean, again, when you look at it, it's there's a saying in England about soccer and rugby where 
soccer is a gentleman's game played by thugs and rugby is a thugs game played by gentlemen. And it's a dismissive comment <laughs> because typically rugby is played at what in the US we would call private schools. You know, you have to pay to go to that school. So that's typically where the majority of players come from. Whereas soccer is a very working class game. You know, you can go out in the street and, and play, um, you know, wherever you want. Whereas you can't like tackle someone on the street in rugby. You need a, an actual field to play in for, <laughs> as, as one example. But so you do typically get working class kids who grew up with very little playing football. There's a book that was written a few years ago. Well, a long time ago and probably about 20 years ago. I'm forgetting the name of it, but it, talked about like they had this premise of why England would never win a world cup again. And it was because <laughs> they effectively exclude a class from their teams. Like if you are viewed as middle or upper class in England, you're often not accepted into a lot of these teams or you're ridiculed a little bit. Like there was a famous player who did play and was really good and played for England, but he was, his name was Graham Lasso, And he used to read the guardian in the locker room or changing room. And he just used to get ridiculed by all the other players because like they were reading the sun or, you know, whatever. Rag. <laughs> I, I think that's very different in Europe, especially, you know, when you see these European players, they're, they're often from all classes. And usually, you know, English players get criticized a lot for being uneducated. But I think a, a lot of that is just again, being dismissive because they have what is viewed as like a working class accent. They're not, they're, a lot of these guys are pretty smart. Mm. And the other, th the other thing about them is, you know, for example, Wayne Rooney was always viewed as like this really stupid person. And a major reason for that is his first press conference. And nobody considers the fact he was a 16 year old when he started playing in the Premier League. And he was just put in front of all these reporters as a 16 year old and expected to give a press conference. And I think that's something any 60-year-old would struggle with to kind of be forced yeah, into the spotlight in that, in that, at that age. I don't think I could handle that even today, honestly. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's a really interesting history. And I would like to do more on, you know, how money is kind of ruining the game. Um, just one more point on Celtic. They won the European Cup, I believe it was in the 70s, might have been the 60s, the European Cup, which is now called the Champions League. It's basically the competition in England, in Europe, where all the best teams from every division play. Hmm. And they, whoever wins is the champion of Europe. I'm almost certain it was Celtic. Their team was comprised of every single player was born within 20 miles of the stadium. Wow. That's unheard of in the American situation. Yeah, it's, and it's unheard of now as well. The only team that comes close is Athletic Bilbao in Spain, who historically, I think it's changed a little bit now, but they will only, predominantly only sign Basque player. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, things have, again, money's changed that a lot and you get kids, you know, Sunderland have a really good youth academy and we've had a few bad years now and you just end up basically we had some really shady owners and they would just sign all these kids that came through our youth academy to the highest bidder in, in London or wherever. So you get all these kids who were brought up in Sunderland and then go play for whoever will pay them the most money. So unfortunately, the players' ties to the community are not as strong as they probably were previously. But you, st you still get players who come and play for a team and stay there their whole career and you know, really, really do have ties to the community, but it's not as common as it used to be. It's kind of interesting in the American context where you have these star players that come to these teams 
and will play on the team for four or five years and they get traded away. And then there's a, especially in the MLB, a history of those players coming back to their original team to retire, to play their last two years. Pittsburgh is really experiencing that right now with the Pirates. They got back a few of their old star players because they're old now and washed up and they're willing to take that pay cut to be back in the community that accepted them back when they were, you know, just starting out. Yeah. And I think a lot of times those guys, like I think McCutcheon is probably is one of the guys you're talking about. And I think he's mm-hmm. probably viewed as like a, you know, he, he obviously isn't as good as he used to be, but he's probably a really good locker room guy and kind of a role model for the younger players. Right. Yeah. And he's a Pittsburgh guy. His wife is from the area and he has a yeah. house here and his kids grew up here. And even though he played for various teams, I know the giants most famously, he still kept a house in this community and wanted to come back to it in the end, took a huge pay cut in order to do it. Not that he's hurting for money. Yeah. But he uh, has some connection, but it's not nearly as strong as you're talking about with these historical clubs. I mean, the other major difference is, you know, when players move teams in the US, they're traded, right? Whereas in Mm -hmm. England, so an example would be Jordan Henderson. Jordan Henderson was born in Sunderland, came up through the youth academy and played for Sunderland. And then... He was bought by Liverpool. So Liverpool paid, I think it was 25 million pounds to Sunderland to get Jordan Henderson. And then they, of course, have to negotiate a contract with Henderson and everything else. He's gone on to be the captain of Liverpool. He he plays for England. He's won the Premier League. He's won the Champions League with Liverpool. But that 25 million, while it's not a lot for these teams that are owned by billionaires or in the case of more and more teams now owned by governments like the Saudis, for a team like Sunderland, that 25 million can fund the purchase of players and hopefully, if it's invested wisely, protect their position in the league. Unfortunately, it wasn't in the case of Sunderland. But a better example would be in England, you have four professional leagues. You have the Premier League down to what's called League Two. And they're all professional. And if, you, if you're in the bottom three of the Premier League, you get relegated into the championship and the top three teams in the championship get, rele- get promoted into the Premier League. And you have this up and down of teams. And then, but you also have a competition called the FA Cup where any team in England can join the FA Cup. And as long as they progress through qualifying, they can end up playing a Premier League team. So if you get a team in League Two that somehow makes it to a stage where they can play a Premier League team, the, the ticket sales for that one game can often fund that team for five years. So you have these, you know, there's a massive discrepancy in, in the wages and everything else, but you have these opportunities sometimes where either selling a player or getting this lucky match against a big team is, is going to, you know, safeguard your team for, for years to come. And like in a lot of cases, when you get these teams playing, you know, like if Man City were to play a team in League One or League Two, one of their players probably earns 10 times as much as every single player mm. on that lower league team. Yeah, all of this might seem far afield for what we're going to be talking about, but for anybody like me who has absolutely no idea how football works in Europe, this is all very useful in understanding the sort of deep monetary, cultural, historical lineage to these sort of conflicts that we're going to be talking about in this article. All right, let's jump in. All right. This weekend marked the Scottish soccer season's first old firm matchup. 
the nickname for the rivalry between Celtic and the Rangers, two of the country's most storied clubs, both based in Glasgow. The teams play a few times each season, and at each match, even though only a few thousand Jews live in Glasgow, there's a decent chance that fans will see Israeli and Palestinian flags flying in the stands. Across Scotland, soccer and sociology have always been tightly intertwined, and many Scottish teams have become repositories for clashing identities, politics, and histories. But the Israeli-Palestinian flag phenomena, which started around 15 years ago, leaves Scottish Jewish fans stuck in the middle of a political divide that they would like to escape while at the soccer pitch. I think it's kind of interesting in that article they actually call it soccer. They're clearly identifying with an American audience here. I didn't even notice that the first time I read it. Yeah, and the political and social divide, I forget if I mentioned this while we were just talking or on this, it runs deep with these two teams. As I mentioned, you know, typically, if you have two teams in a city, one is Protestant and one is Catholic, and that's definitely the case here. Rangers were founded by two brothers um, and have very much become like the establishment team in Scotland, you know, supporting the government, supporting the queen. And Celtic were started by a Catholic priest, and it was largely to give the Irish immigrants who'd come to work in Scotland and in Glasgow, you know, some recreational activities. And so the, probably other than Northern Ireland, it's, it's where you'll see the closest thing to that Northern Irish, you know, rivalry between Catholics and Protestants would be in Glasgow. It, it's not so prominent in England anymore, but Glasgow, you know, the rain, as I said, Rangers are the establishment team and, and Celtic have always been viewed as IRA supporting, Palestinian supporting, and, you know, very much, you know, kind of anti-establishment and anti-government. So in some way, these conflicts between Israel and Palestine have been sort of grafted onto larger conflicts that are more personal to these fans. Yeah. Whereas they may not be entirely interested in the fine details of the conflict going on in historical Palestine. Exactly. We want to see it stopped, said Paul Edlin of the Glasgow Jewish Representative Council. The clubs don't like it, but they won't stop it from happening. Flags on the terraces at the Rangers' Ibrox Stadium and at Celtic Park are common sights, more so than in England, where the marriage between football and politics tends to be much weaker. At Celtic and Rangers games, Irish tricolors and British Union Jacks are so common that they are accepted and immediately recognized as substitutes for the club's own banners. There is no reason to fly the flags of countries at football matches for any reason, neither Israeli nor Palestinian, Edlin added. Several Scottish teams have historical ties to local Protestant and Catholic communities, a product of over a century of sectarianism. Celtic, founded in 1887 by destitute Irish Catholic immigrants, has remained deeply attached to its Irish roots and its fans have historically been linked to political causes protesting against anti-Catholic discrimination in Scotland and supporting Irish political autonomy. I'm glad my point was supported here. Yeah. Many Celtic fans feel deep solidarity with causes across the Irish Sea and among some, especially the few hundred strong in the vocal Green Brigade fan group, there is a perceived parallel between Irish nationalism and Palestinian liberation. 
pro-Palestinian sentiment is very widespread in broader Irish society and its government. So I think this is a good place just to note that the Irish parliament has at least two, maybe three members that have come out in support of Palestine against the government of Israel and are incredibly vocal about that support, which even in the European context is incredibly rare. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you see very few established government officials coming out um, in support of Palestine, um, especially in this country. Uh, I guess we have Ilan Omar, is that? Yes, out of Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, she. I think she's got in trouble, hasn't she, for making statements in the past? Yeah, very relatively milquetoast statements that she's even yeah. had to apologize for before the Congress uh, in, in very embarrassing ways. Embarrassing as an American, anyway. Yeah, I mean, just to touch on a few things here. Um, I think he's right, whoever wrote this, when, I'm, I'm assuming he, I apologize if it's not, um, yeah, Jacob. Um, where he says that the English political ties are weaker. I think that's definitely true um, in, in the majority of cases. In the case of the team that I support, Sunderland, we were founded by mining uh, unions and the shipyard union. And that relationship has existed since the formation of the team. And the only time it took a break was when we hired a whether he was truly a fascist or whether he was just appealing to Italian fans, someone that was viewed as a fascist and, um, or at least extremely right wing. And when they hired him as our manager, the union completely broke away with the team and then he was fired and, and they came back, you know, so there is still some political affiliations with the teams, but it's, it is definitely weaker and it's, it's, it's even, it's become even weaker as it's become such, a, such an international sport. You know, especially if you look in the Premier League, you probably find very few teams that are actually owned by English people. Liverpool are owned by the same group, that, that Fenway sports group uh, that owns the Penguins and the Red Sox. Um, Todd Bowley, who owns an NFL team, owns Chelsea. I believe the Qataris own Man City. The Saudis own Newcastle. Are these the Qatari and Saudis of East Glasgow, or <laughs> no? They're a, they're effectively state-owned. <laughs> you know, the Saudi government effectively owns Newcastle, and the <laughs> Qataris effectively own Man City. And there's rumors that I think another group is from maybe Qatar. I'm, I forget is going to own Manchester United soon. Because they're owned by the Glaciers, who own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and they want to sell. So, you know, that's definitely weakened the, the ties to the community. The other thing that I wanted to mention was he mentions the Green Brigade. So that would be viewed as like the kind of hardcore group of fans for, for Celtic. And in other parts of the world, South America and, and most of Europe, these fans are called ultras. And I mentioned this fascist guy that, that managed Sunderland for a while. His name was uh, Paolo Di Canio. He used to play for Lazio in Rome, and their fans are viewed as pretty fascist. And he, whenever he used to score, well, not maybe not all the time, but at least on more than one occasion, he would run over to the ultras and give fascist salute to the to the fans. So Jeez. you know, yeah. And the other thing to say is, especially in Italy, these fans have a lot of power. They have a lot of mm -hmm. influence over the team. 
They have usually a pretty tight relationship with whoever owns the team. I remember I was in Sardinia years ago, and the team there is uh, Cagliari. And they were performing really poorly in Serie A, and they were about to be relegated. And the Ultras went to training and beat up half the team because they felt <laughs> players weren't trying hard enough. And nothing happened to these fans. So it's, you know, they Jeez. have... They have uh, a lot more power than they do in England, the fans. And I mean, it, when you watch some of these ultra videos, it's pretty impressive how when you talk about atmosphere in a stadium, it's, it's much more intense over there than it is in the US, I think. Yeah. And just to latch on something that you said earlier that might pique the ears of some people in the United States when you say that American teams aren't owned by the communities. I'd like to remind you that the Green Bay Packers are technically publicly owned a four, a full less than 4% of the ownership rights of the Green Bay Packers are owned by approximately 537,460 people. Uh, now, of course, the rest of that 96% are owned by various millionaires, billionaires, and corporations. But the Green Bay Packers, 4% of them are owned by the people. You do see movements in England, not so much in the Premier League, because again, that's totally driven by money, but in the lower leagues that I mentioned, you see these guys come in and buy the team and run it really poorly to the point of, you've seen a lot of teams declare bankruptcy recently. Mm. And when that happens, you, you have seen a lot of fan movements where the fans have bought back the team and you see fan ownership in the lower leagues, which I think is a good, obviously a good thing. But again, it's in these cases where some millionaire or billionaire has bought a team, run it into the ground, taken any money out, and then they've been at a point where if the fans don't buy it, that team may cease to exist. And you know, a lot of these teams in, in England, they're the only professional team in the city or the town. And you know, they've been around since the 1800s. So if you're born in a, somewhere in England, you're typically a fan of that team through good and bad, you know, unfortunately, like for me, I was born in Sunderland and I'm a Sunderland fan and we got relegated out of the Premier League about 10 years ago and we got relegated all the way down to the third division and we've worked our way back up to the second, but it's, you know, you don't really change allegiances from where you were born. That's, it's not always the case, but it's typically where you're born is, is who you support. Yeah. And you definitely see some of that in the United States. It just yeah. doesn't seem to run nearly as deep or as cultural in terms of who you're actually rooting for. I think in some cities like Pittsburgh, you're typically a, a Pittsburgh fan, right? Yeah, and I, th I think you hear a lot of that because of the Pittsburgh diaspora with the number of people that had to leave the city as it was be becoming deindustrialized at the same moment when the Steelers were doing just so incredibly well. And on some level, I really wish that Bob Nutting would screw up and actually not be able to run the Pirates as profitably as he has yeah because even though he's able to run one of the worst teams in baseball historically he still makes just enough money and produces the lowest viable product so that he never actually falls off his ability to own the team it's really pathetic as a unfortunate pittsburgh fan yeah there is this grouping that have this narrative that celtic is all about irish republicanism and that they speak for celtic said Lord Ian Livingston, a Jewish member of Britain's parliament and a former Celtic board member director. If you are saying that you side with the oppressed against the strong, with anti-imperialist forces against imperialism, then this is an easy leap for them. 
in Glasgow, the Green Brigade has raised thousands of pounds for Palestinian charities and since 2019 has supported a football academy in the West Bank called Ida Celtic, based at the Ida refugee camp near Bethlehem. Livingston, a member of the Conservative Party, was seen as a controversial executive among the team's liberal fan base, and he resigned from the team in 2017 in response to fan pressure. When Celtic fans began adopting Palestinian flags in the late 2000s at the Rangers' Ibrox Stadium, where a portrait of the Queen stares down at players in the home team's dressing room, the knee-jerk response among some fans was to hoist Israeli flags among the Union Jacks and Northern Irish crosses. It is a small group, but I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable, and it shouldn't be there, said Livingston, a Conservative Party member. Neither should Israeli flags be at Ibrox because it is not about politics. The vast majority would say it has nothing to do with football. And this gets into that, this whole discussion about should sports be in politics, right? And we have talked about this before, but they're always going to be intertwined. These players are humans and they're going to have their opinions, whether it's players talking or whether it's, whether it's the fans. Um, It just goes to that. What I view as a pretty stupid argument of sports should be sports and keep your opinions out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's all deeply one-sided. It's the notion of ideology where they're not saying we should keep politics out of sports anytime the Blue Angels fly over the stadium. They only say it whenever something slightly unpopular or slightly controversial is stated by the working class individual on the pitch who has an opinion that might even be claimed to be controversial. I know we've stated this with somebody like Colin Kaepernick, but I think he's even more of a lightning rod figure. I think there's even lower positions that people have tried to take or statements that athletes have tried to make that have gotten them removed. Like even to the point where they try to get more money, like the quarterback of the Ravens, who's just been shut out right. since he attempted to get more pay. Yeah, and I think we made a point on a previous podcast. It'd be interesting to see if if he was Peyton Manning or any other white quarterback, whether he'd be treated the same considering he's viewed as, you know, such an elite player. But this also, I I mentioned this, I think, a long time ago when it was just still Nick and I. You know, the Premier League, they all knelt in support of BLM um, for at least a year after it it seemed to have died down in the U.S. And there were fans that, that were upset about that. And there was one pretty famous match between a team called Burnley and Man City where the players all knelt before the game. And someone, a fan, played for, paid for a plane to fly over the stadium with White Lives Matter, with a White Lives Matter, Matter banner flying behind the, um, behind the plane. And, you know, it, it, it was interesting, the reaction afterwards. Pep Guardiola, who is the manager, who is the manager of Man City and is, is probably the, viewed as the best coach in the world, you know, he was very vocal about whoever did that obviously doesn't understand the message. I think he's... His word, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but his words were basically like, yes, of course, white lives do matter, but that's not the message here. You know, mm-hmm. all I, you know, I, he, he's, he's Spanish, so English is not his first language, although he, he speaks it really well. But he said, we know all lives matter, 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 but we have to get the point out that black people are being oppressed and we need to make sure that the message gets out. And then Ben Mee, who is the, who was the captain of Burnley, I mean, he gave, he was, incensed after the match that someone would have done that and and again just said 
he's a white guy. He was like, you people don't understand the message we're, we're trying to get out there. This is extremely important and, you know, we're going to keep doing this. And I think England are the only team that is still kneeling before every match in support of Black Lives Matter. To this day? Yeah, they still do. And, you know, whether, you know, I guess people can dismiss it as a token gesture, but at least, you know, the manager, Gareth Southgate, there's always been this argument in the English team of being clicks between these, between different groups of players. And he's done a lot to unify the team. And he has a lot of young black players in his team. And he wants to make sure that they feel valued and included. And he, you know, he really supports the movement and, um, you know, make sure that all the players understand why they're doing it. And, you know, I think he's done a lot to, to try and get the message across to the, you know, the English fans, but a lot of them are still, you know, you still have a lot of, you know, BMP and really right-wing groups that are big football fans. And they're of course going to get pissed off about it, but they can go fuck themselves. (laughs) Yeah. I think you touched on this, but even though it really is on some level, a token gesture, I think the comparison is really interesting in that I don't believe any American football teams continue to even make that sort of token gesture, right? Yeah. And instead we have, you know, hashtag BLM sprayed into the end zones where these these political statements are really anesthetized as much as possible. And it just seems so shocking to even think that an American team would continue to kneel. Yeah. Which wouldn't be shocking at all if it was a purely token gesture, right? Because it has some value in that they did all that they could to scrub it from the league. Right. I don't know. It's uh, just interesting to think about the differences between the two because it just does seem, even as you're saying, this big money is coming into European, British sport it's all, it's always been there in the american situation at least since the 1970s yeah yeah i think that's true there are around 30 jews who regularly attend celtic matches and the increasing visibility of the green brigade has attracted some attention uefa the union of european football associations has repeatedly fined the teams for the palestinian flag displays i wonder what they're finding them The Jewish Representative Council complained to Celtic when the Green Brigade hoisted hundreds of Palestinian flags in advance of a special send-off for Celtic legend Scott Brown in May 2021. Celtic described the display as unacceptable and took the flags down. You mentioned the UEFA fine. Um, And UEFA criticized very heavily because they'll find something like this, right? But then... Mm -hmm. The other issue we have and, and why I think the England team still does kneel during matches is in a lot of countries and a lot of times in Eastern Europe, but even in Italy, you still get extremely racist chants at players. I mean, just hmm. two, two weeks ago, Romelu Lukaku, who's a, a Belgian of, of African descent, he plays for Inter Milan. He scored for them and he had been receiving racist chants for the entire match. And he walked over to the crowd and just like kind of put his fingers to his lips like a be quiet sign. He was sent off and he was fined by the Italian FA. And they upheld that fine and they upheld his Mm. ban. And there was a lot of uproar about that. But even so that's more the Italian. But when you look at UEFA, 
there's been numerous cases of English of English players being, you know, having monkey chants and having just racist abuse when they play in some of these countries. And all UEFA will do is like maybe give them some, you know, token fine or say that a section of fans can't come to a game. There's never really any there's never any backbone to any of the um punishments they dish out for some for for this, you know, abhorrent behavior. So th- there's always these movements of, you know, before BLM, it was like kick racism out of football was, was a big thing mm. in England. And again, it was the same thing. Like when that thing happened to Lukaku a few years ago, Thierry Henry, who was a really famous French player and is now a pundit, you know, he said, I'm sick of all these movements and, and us doing all this. But then when it comes down to it, the authorities do nothing to stop this. It's, he, he's like, everything's driven by the fans or the fans or the players. And we get no support but from the actual authorities. So it's, you know, there's definitely a disconnect between some of the movements of the players and, and some fans and, and the authorities that are supposed to be there to support everybody and everybody should play football. And it's the same thing with the Qatar World Cup, you know, all the anti-LGBTQ stuff that goes on in Qatar and, you know, FIFA don't give a shit. They just, they'll go wherever the money is as well. Right, and I think that goes back to the Lineker affair that we were talking about on a previous podcast, where there are certain political statements that are acceptable and supported in others, which are given lip service, but aren't giving any sort of teeth. And then others still, which are actually punished, that seem to be of much greater value. You know, I don't know how much these Palestinian flags were fined uh but my guess is it was probably more than anybody's been fined for any of their monkey chants right i would hope to be wrong but who knows it doesn't make it easy for the jewish boys that support celtic gerard minister 52 diehard celtic fan who is jewish said ahead of saturday's game in which his team routed rangers four to zero I think this is funny. They never mention who actually wins these matches up until now. It seems to be such a side issue. They don't ever mention it. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Whenever there is trouble in Israel and Palestine, it seems to raise its head again. It can be challenging, but it is all part of it, and it doesn't put me off supporting Celtic. So that whole paragraph is just fascinating to me. So it doesn't make it easy for Jewish boy that supports Celtic. Well, there are plenty of Jewish people that can support Celtic and support Palestine. There's nothing that intrinsically makes a Jewish person offended at the concept of Palestinian solidarity. Right. But that, of course, is the source that we're looking at, which is the Times of Israel. They're interested in conflating the two. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these fans, you get caught up with a group and, you know, you probably say things you wouldn't normally say, you do things you wouldn't normally do, and you probably don't understand half the things you're doing. I mean... I'm sure a lot of these fans that have the Palestinian flags are in support of Palestine, but there's probably also some that just kind of go with the group, right? Yeah. And then to be fair, I'm sure there are a number of them that uh, take that as an excuse to be anti-Semitic. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But that's probably very little to what they actually believe or even have thought that hard about, especially when they're talking about the number of Jewish people in this community, where it says around 30 Jewish people regularly attend Celtic matches. I'm looking at the pictures of these stadiums and they look huge and they look full. I can't imagine 30 is very, very large. 
Yeah, matches between these two would definitely be sellouts. And I, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but they probably are somewhere between forty to 60,000 fans. That sounds about right to me. The emergence of the flags as a proxy for the rivalry between Celtic and the Rangers is to some less about the details of Israeli and Palestinian politics and more a reflection of much deeper sectarian issues in Scotland. Both Celtic and the Rangers have had Israeli players, many of them well-liked. Nir Baton, for instance, finished a nine-year stint at Celtic Park with a standing ovation from 60,000 Celtic fans in May. Another Israeli player, Lieb Abada, remains on the Celtic roster. While the Catholic and Protestant divide has largely vanished in England, it has survived as an undercurrent in Scotland, and many believe that football rivalries have helped sustain it. It is still massive, said David Kaplan, a Jewish supporter of Heart of Midlothian, an Edinburgh club historically associated with the Protestant population. Every club in Scotland has a religious affiliation in Scotland, even if they don't admit it. In, in Edinburgh, Hibs would be the uh, Catholic team. So just every Scottish city that has more than one team would have a Catholic and Protestant team? Is that what they're saying? I mean, you know, as I said, whether you could say every team, but the majority of them were founded by either the church or, or a union. So yeah, typically every team would have one or the other. And it's the same in England. Historically, again, this, he's right. The religious ties have definitely died, died down in England. I, I get the most prominent one is probably still Tottenham, who were the Jewish team. And it's not that prominent. It's just that, you know, this is not a, this is a derogatory term. So I apologize, but their quote unquote ultra fans call themselves the Yid army. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, it's, you still see vestiges of this in the United States with cultural groups. Like there are still hospitals called in this region Presbyterian and Mercy and Montefiore. So Montefiore would have been the Jewish hospital in the region. Presbyterian would have been the Presbyterian hospital. And Mercy would have been the Catholic hospital. And at the time they were founded, that would have been where the Catholics, the Protestants, the Jews would go for their health care. But that has all but fallen aside, except for pro-life, pro-choice issues, of course. This has made Scotland's 5,000 or so Jews an oddity in the Scottish soccer landscape. Unencumbered by the religious and cultural baggage of their Christian peers, many Jews can choose more freely which team they want to root for. Jews felt that they were caught in the middle, said Harvey Kaplan of the Scottish Jewish Archive Center in Glasgow. Jews also probably had less bother because Protestants and Catholics were more likely to be fighting each other. Historically, most Jews have supported the Rangers in Hearts, the shorthand for Heart of Midlothian. When Jews arrived as immigrants from Eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the children mostly adopted the teams of their friends and classmates. Most of them sent their children to Protestant schools, Kaplan explained, because they were more open to a range of students in opposition to Catholic schools, which were focused on Catholic students. This would mean that you would likely come out as Rangers supporters, he said. There is also, however, a sizable group of Jews that started following Celtic in the late 1960s when 3rd Lanark, a South Glasgow team with a large Jewish following, went bust. What is went bust? What does that mean? Bankrupt and went out of existence. Oh, okay. So what it sounds like. Yeah. At the time, Celtic was at their height. 
winning nine consecutive league titles in the European Cup in 1967. So the third Lanark fans who hopped on the bandwagon. Had third Lanark survived, it might have developed into a team with a reputation for Jewish support, much like Tottenham in England in the 1920s and 1930s. Third Lanark, situated near a Jewish neighborhood, even fielded one of the few Scottish-Jewish professional footballers, Sam Ladder. As late as 1960, the Jewish Chronicle reported that a quarter of the 6,000-strong crowd at Third Lanark Stadium were Jews. So they're saying about 2,000 of the 6,000 there were Jewish after just stating that about 5,000 Jews in total lived in Scotland. That's pretty incredible if that's true. Well, I mean, I guess the one thing to say that, that could reflect that is I think most immigrants, if they moved to Scotland, would have either moved to Glasgow or Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. They're the two major cities. And Glasgow, I believe, was a port city. Um, so it probably would have had more of the jobs. Mm-hmm. So I would assume that, you know, a big reason why Irish immigrants moved there was was because there were more jobs there. Um, so I would assume that if you were an immigrant looking for work, Glasgow would probably be your destination. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm sure that the Jewish population was very concentrated in the urban centers, much in the same way that modern Jewish populations are also concentrated in the urban centers. In England, the Jewish footprint on the pitch has tended to be minimal. And in Scotland, it has been even smaller. While there are occasional discussions about possible up-and-coming Jewish players unearthed by Celtic and Rangers fans on message boards, many are Irish or Scottish players who happen to have vaguely Jewish-sounding surnames. One notable Jewish player from Scottish history was the almost-forgotten Lancashire-born Joe Abraham, who became likely the first-ever Jew to play professional top-flight football in Britain when he debuted for Glasgow club Patrick Thistle, in 1897. A handful of Israeli players have come to ply their trade in England and Scotland and Celtic. Emerging from a decade of dominance has been an attractive lure. Ultimately, however, Scotland's Jewish community is shrinking, down from some 20,000 in the early 1960s, perhaps even less 5,000 today. And there might not be a next generation of players and fans to ever worry about, said Min. The problems preoccupying Scotland's aging Jewish core, that is, youth are breeding away to Britain's Jewish capitals, London and Manchester, in search of opportunities and are not returning, are common in smaller Jewish communities across the United Kingdom. What comes next is going to be an irrelevance because the Jewish community is so small, Minister said. I can name probably 20 or 30 Jewish season ticket holders at Hearts today. Only one of them lives in Edinburgh. So that's the end of the article. Yeah. So I think part of that speaks to your argument that I don't think many of these people waving Israeli or Palestinian flags are thinking that much about the Jewish people in general, that it's really symbolic for them and drafts pretty well onto their own political issues and concerns. Yeah. But the article does take some effort to talk about the charities and the money being sent to Palestine. So I wonder if it's entirely symbolic or if it's radicalizing or it starts out as symbolic for most people and then they really start to learn about it. 
because it's at least being spoken about in open and acceptable ways that it's really not being spoken about anywhere else. Yeah, and and I think it goes to you know the you know points I guess I tried to make throughout is that some of these fans that are are more conscientious do you know they do a lot to make sure that you know the causes that they believe in are supported, and I think that's true to this day in in, in Britain. I think in, it's not always true, but it, I'm speaking from experience in Sunderland, which is a very working class uh, area. Um, you know, those fans have a lot of ties to working class movements. Um, and the, your typical fan is, is, is just a normal working class person in Sunderland because it's one of the few teams that even when they were in the Premier League, you know, they didn't really jack their prices up. It was an affordable thing to do in comparison to some of the teams in London where it's pretty similar to like going to a Penguins game, how much you're going to spend or an ice hockey game, how much you're going to spend on a ticket. Whereas in Sunderland, you could go, I think the average ticket price is probably 20 pounds. Mm. So, you know, my relatives there who some who even, you know, my younger cousins who don't have a lot of money, you know, the one thing they make sure of is that they save enough to buy a season ticket for Sunderland every year. Mm. So I think that's, you know, and they, they get involved in a lot of the movements there. So I, I do think it, it exists, and I do think there are going to be conscientious people who, who do support the causes that they wave flags for or, or you know, at least vocally support. They're going to follow through on that. And then there's, again, as you said, there's some that are just going to get caught up in the moment. Yeah, and I want to give more credit to these people waving these flags because even the article notes that, quote, when there is trouble in Israel and Palestine, it seems to raise its head again. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and as far as Israel and Palestine is concerned, there seems to be constant trouble. So I I wouldn't even know where to state when trouble is ebbed or flowed. But there is a connection to when things are happening in the historic area of Palestine, there are more flags, which argues that they're paying attention, at least basically, to the, the politics and the news that's happening in the Middle East. Yeah. I mean, two things I'd... I'd like to mention at the end, or, you know, we've talked a lot about these fans, but um, there's a lot of really high profile players in the world now that um, are pretty big supporters of of the Palestinian movement. Again, it's a few years ago, but in 19, and sorry, in 2021, Leicester won the FA Cup, which is viewed as like the second most important trophy in England after the league. And two of their players, Hamza Chowdhury and Wesley Vafana, both Flew, both held up Palestinian flags after they won that game. And that was shortly after there'd been um, 10 people, including two children, had been killed in Gaza. So you got Riyad Mahrez, who's an Algerian, Paul Pogba, who's French, Mohamed Salah, who um, is Egyptian, at the time all playing in England. Um, and again, if you follow soccer at all, you know those three players. Salah is one of the best in the world. Pogba at the time was viewed as one of the best in the world, and Mares plays for Man City, which is um, you know arguably the best club team in the world. They all posted pictures for you know supporting Palestine as well, you know on Twitter and everything else, and 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 have Palestinian flags. So he called Pogba asked all his play all his followers, which I, he has millions, you know, to pray for Palestine, and then Salah called on world leaders, including Boris Johnson, to do everything in their power to make sure violence and killing of innocent people stops immediately. So you're getting a lot more of, 
you know, high profile players, again, it goes back to our point of, you know, you can't separate the two politics and sport. They're using their platform to try and get support for these movements, which I think is, you know, they have a platform to do it and they should. And hopefully that gives these supporters who were supporting the movements as well some encouragement. Yeah, just to build on what you were saying there in terms of the players really reaching out, maybe they're not influencing the leaders of these countries, but the fans are definitely listening to them. And I think that's part of the reason that in the last World Cup, you had these articles written about fans, whether they be European, Middle Eastern, or otherwise, you know, dismissing Israeli reporters attempting to speak to them, you know, flipping them off, ridiculing them or just outright berating them on live television, you know, screaming at them, free Palestine, or there is no Israel, yeah. that the fans, even if a percentage of them are apolitical, a percentage of them are sort of parroting things just for the cultural aspect of it, there is a not insignificant number of them that are actually interested in the politics that their favorite sport icon is pushing. Yeah. Just one other thing about support is there's a team in Ireland, which again, you know, you, you have the ties to Celtic there, Bohemian FC. They released a new shirt this year that has a new football kit. We call, you know, the uniforms kit to help create awareness about human rights violations in Palestine by Israel and to raise funds for children in the Tokharm refugee camp in the West Bank. So this is a 132-year-old football team in soccer team in Dublin that are releasing a shirt this year to make sure that you know their fans are aware of of what's going on. So you know, again, the Irish showing their support. Then the only the last thing I wanted to mention and and um, you you mentioned a couple Jewish players who played or is sorry Israeli players who played for um, who played for Celtic or Rangers over the years and mm-hmm. certainly in football. Um, in, or soccer, there's not a lot of Jewish representation, I would say. But a lot of that is, is due to the Holocaust. To go back historically, Hungary were one of the best teams in the world and were made up of a lot of, you know, pre-First World War. And then after the Second World War, they were good again with not so many Jewish players. But pre, pre-Second World War, sorry, there were some really, really good Jewish footballers in the world. And almost... All of them were wiped out by the Holocaust. And the famous example of someone who wasn't is a guy called uh, Bella Gutman, who went on to be regarded as one of the best managers after he survived. It was a pre- he was born in Budapest, and it's a pretty famous story. I've read a book about him where he, he hid in a, I think it was a bakery, in the attic of a bakery for a year. And he ended up getting captured, and he survived. I'm not sure which camp he was in. But he, he was in a labor camp and he survived and went on to be a manager. But again, by the time he, the Second World War was over, this generation of Jewish players who were... And in this book, it talks about how a lot of these players viewed um, the opinion of Jewish people being that they were weak and unathletic. And they used football as a way to show that that wasn't true. And there was a famous team, I believe in Budapest, who was, you could only be Jewish if you played for them. And they toured the world just showing that, you know, the, the stereotype wasn't true. And then again, mm-hmm. unfortunately, the majority of them were wiped out in the Holocaust. Yeah, I think it's just worth keeping in mind that when these articles use the notion that Jews aren't represented or Jews don't feel represented or shown, uh, 
it's worth keeping in mind that even in the United States, which has the second largest Jewish population of any country on the planet, it's roughly 2.4%. And that's going off the broadest definition of Jewish. That leads to about 4.2 million Jews that actually identify religiously as Jewish. And that's even less than the number of people that identify as transgendered in the United States. Like these arguments can be twisted in ways to make anti-Semitic claims that just aren't there because we so easily forget that Jewish people really are a very small minority. And that sort of leads me to another observation I made on this article that even though it's heavily insinuated, anti-Semitism is actually not used as a phrase at all. But this article is classified under anti-Semitism in sport. Hmm. And from what we've looked at and what's being said in this article and what's even being delved into, none of this actually sounds very anti-Semitic to me. Right. It just sounds like anti-Israel. I mean, they don't talk about any anti-Jewish chanting, anti-Jewish statements. It purely seems to be on the political level, which is not how anti-Semitism should ever be defined. Yep. I don't have anything else. I think that's a good place to end it, if, unless you have any other points. No, I, I think that's, that went well. Yeah. Hopefully Nick even, approves. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, even, even without Nick, I think we were able to produce something. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> this ends up blowing up, then we'll have to think twice about whether or not he's allowed back on the show. <laughs> yeah. We'll let him finish the series and then we'll, then we'll decide. Yeah. We'll, we'll do this on a uh, day by day basis. That's a good way to take it. All right. I, I think we just uh, thank everybody for listening. I am not on social media, but I believe the Instagram is intervention pod. Um, so check Nick out there because he's the one that does all that. So we would lose that if we got rid of him and, uh, I am not <laughs> social media savvy enough to, to run that. So, uh, he's, he still has a valuable position. Yeah. So, uh, if Nick gets demoted, he'll still be on even on the social media. Yeah. Okay. I, thanks again for listening and, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Adios, paisanos.